Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you again. You've had a busy schedule these past few weeks. Oh, I really have, and I still do, but anyway, let's get to some broadcasting here today. So what's on your mind today? Well, a lot of things going on, and we continue to want to talk about the Hebrew view of law and how that impacts our legal system today. But one of the things we've been working on a lot lately has been cases involving military personnel who are facing discharge or discipline because they have religious objections to the COVID vaccine and because the military simply is not giving credence to their religious objections. One case that we have going right now involves an Air Force officer, and she is stationed in Georgia right now, so this has been in the federal courts in Georgia, and she has submitted a request for religious exemption, denied, appeal, denied, and at that point, the Air Force had not granted a single religious exception. Well, the case went to a federal judge. This judge, by the way, was a former, former Army officer himself, so he had some understanding of military necessity. But in this case, the Army, or the, the Air Force in that case, argued that military necessity required that everybody have the vaccine and that nobody could be exempted from it. Well, we pointed out in our amicus brief, and the main parties pointed this out as well, that the Air Force had already granted several thousand exemptions for medical reasons. In other words, those who might have a medical reaction to the vaccine or administrative reasons. And having granted thousands of those, we say you forfeited your argument that military necessity forbids you to give exemptions. Can you show us any reason why you can grant medical and administrative exemptions, but not religious exemptions? Anyway, the judge bought that argument, and he has issued a temporary injunction against the Air Force taking action against this officer, and we hope that stands up. The matter, of course, is going on an appeal, and there's also efforts to expand this into a class action lawsuit. At the same time, there is an action in the Northern District of Texas on behalf of a group of Navy SEALs and other Navy personnel. And again, they have had an injunction in their favor. There's an action that's been filed Air Force-wide right now in that same district court in Texas. And we're waiting to see some results on that. We just had a matter of a Marine Lieutenant Colonel outstanding record, unblemished record, all the way through for 17 years, and yet he had to go before a discharge board because, you know, if he'd been Navy, he would have been under one of those blanket exemptions or blanket injunctions, but the Marines don't have one yet. But anyway, the discharge board had the authority to either recommend a general discharge or an honorable discharge or to retain him. They chose the middle ground to discharge him with an honorable discharge, which could have been better, it could have been worse, and it's in the administrative process right now, but he is planning on 
joining with other Marines to take this up with further legal action. And so we really see some interesting things going on here. Now, one of the things that I noted on this, some say that this is a deliberate attempt by the White House and by the Department of Defense to rid the military of conservative Christians because conservative Christians might have religious objections to doing certain things that they might want the military to do. And I'm not necessarily ready to believe it is deliberate and for that purpose yet, but I'm not ruling out the possibility. I guess the way I put it is that this has been a carefully executed operation. The timing has been well done, and it's been very carefully done. There is only one thing the military has forgotten here. That's it. These people are not the enemy. But I got to thinking about that later afterward, and maybe if you hold the agenda that some of the White House are holding right now, maybe they really are the enemy. And there is a need to get rid of them for that reason. Anyway, a lot more is going to be happening on that. And my hope, too, is that after next November, after the next elections, that there will be more ability within Congress to put a stop to some of these excesses. But there's something else going on here, too. And this is shifting gears pretty dramatically right now. But... I was speaking for a conference up in Michigan, and the pastor of the church where I was speaking, good man, and I decided there was a book that I'd like to get for him. And so I went to the website for the book. The website is run by a friend of mine. And so I Googled in lordofthenations.com, and I got a message saying, this website isn't working. Tried it a couple more times, same thing. This website isn't working. So I finally contacted him by email, and he said, yes, Google, shut down my website. Now, I can tell you that this man is a Bible scholar. He writes works on Bible scholarship. The book I was looking for in particular, which I recommend to anybody, is titled The Bible, God's Words to You. It is a strong defense of the inspiration and inerrancy of the scriptures, the belief that the King James text better reflects the original manuscripts than many of the modern translations do, other things like this. It's a great work of scholarship. I don't see how they would consider this a threat, but it comes from somebody that doesn't toe the line with the liberal establishment today, and so they have closed his website down. Now, how can big tech do this? And doesn't this get into issues of a free country and freedom of speech, freedom of the press? Well, I'm going to take a look at that issue for a little bit here, because really, that does become very complicated. You know, we tend to say that freedom of speech means the right to say what you want to say with certain exceptions like obscenity, and the issue has never been whether obscenity is protected by the First Amendment. It isn't. The issue is how do we define it? Or speech that presents a clear and present danger to safety or order, speech advocating a crime or fraudulent speech, a few categories like that. But 
generally, freedom of speech means the right to say what you want. And freedom of the press, we'd normally say, means the right to do pretty much the same thing except in print. Except the definition, the line between speech and press, sometimes is a little difficult to delineate that if you have a newscaster who is talking to an audience of millions, even though he might not write down what he's saying, we generally say that's press. If you write a personal letter to somebody else that isn't intended for widespread dissemination, that'll probably be considered speech. And so you might say that press is widespread dissemination and speech is more narrow dissemination. Regardless of that, this becomes much more complicated when we get to the media. When you start getting to radio stations, television stations, and so on. And let's say that you want to, you, let's say you object to something that somebody on a radio broadcast says. And so you call in and you say, I want equal time. I want you to give me the right to come on the air and give a rebuttal. Well, some radio stations might be inclined to do that. I did that one time about 40 years ago. And there was a pro-abortion talk show guy and advocating for abortion. And I said, you really ought to give equal time to the other side. Well, I got a quick answer. The answer is, okay, you're on tomorrow. That wasn't quite what I meant. I'd never been on a talk show before. But at any rate, it went quite well. But maybe they created a monster in the process. I don't know. But they didn't have to do that. They could have said, no, we are pro-abortion here in this station, and we are going to air only pro-abortion messages and no others. Well, can they do that? If I say, well, what about my right to freedom of speech? What about my right to freedom of press? Doesn't my right to free speech and free press mean you have to give me the right to say what I think on the air, just like giving that right to the person who was on before me? Well, not necessarily. That's where what's called the Ferris Doctrine comes in, and we're going to talk about the Ferris Doctrine after this break. Constitution Classroom. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We're talking about big tech and censorship. Colonel, that's uh, an interesting situation you were put into in looking for equal time and getting it quicker than you expected. Let's talk a little bit about the Fairness Doctrine. Okay, before I talk about the Fairness Doctrine, let me mention a U.S. Supreme Court case, Miami Herald Publishing Company versus Tornillo. T-O-R-N-I-L-L-O. And Tornillo wanted to run for public office, and the Montgomery Herald had published a number of editorials critical of him and his politics, and he prepared a rebuttal, and he wanted the, the Miami Herald to publish his rebuttal. And they said, nope, we're not going to do it. And he pointed out a Florida law that says that if a newspaper 
criticizes a candidate for office, they have to give that candidate the opportunity to submit a rebuttal. And anyway, so he stood on that law. He filed a lawsuit. Case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court said that law, as applied here, is unconstitutional because it interferes with the freedom of the press of the Montgomery Herald and those who publish it. What they said is that freedom of the press means the right to publish a newspaper and to publish what you want in that newspaper. It also includes the right not to publish what you don't want to publish. And if they don't want to publish Mr. Tornilla's material, they don't have to do so. Well, what about Mr. Tornilla's freedom of the press? Well, the answer was, there is no limit to how many newspapers we can have in this country. If Mr. Tornillo wants to get his message out, he can buy some ink and buy some paper and get a printing press, and he can publish his own newspaper with his own ideas. Or he can go find another newspaper that will publish his ideas. Or he can just print handbills and distribute them and so on. But freedom of the press does not give him the right to force another person with freedom of the press, the owner of the Montgomery Herald, to publish something he doesn't want to publish. In other words, freedom of speech and freedom of the press means not only the right to publish what you want to publish and say what you want to say, it also means the right not to say what you don't want to say, not to publish what you don't want to publish. That doctrine has come to be known as the doctrine of compelled speech. In fact, it might be an even greater violation to force somebody to say something he doesn't want to say than to prohibit him from saying what he does want to say. But how do we apply this to a radio station or a television station? Well, that's a somewhat different issue. Now, the reason it's different is that unlike the newspaper, where there is no limit to how many newspapers can be established, you could have more newspapers in Miami than there are people in Miami. If, theoretically, at least you could. There's no reason, theoretically, why anybody can't set up his own newspaper, large or small. But in contrast to that, with the media, that is radio stations and television stations, there's a limit to how many frequencies there are in a certain area. And so the doctrine is then that the public owns the airwaves. And so when the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, says to you, a man who wants to set up a radio station, okay, you apply for a license. Because we can't just let anybody go out there on the airwaves because there's only a certain amount of airwaves. And if you go on the airwaves, you may be taking them away from somebody else who wants to broadcast on those airwaves. So what you need to do is you need to submit an application for a license to broadcast, and we will give you that license. 
and then we will assign you a frequency, 99.7 or something like that. That's your frequency. And you, and only you, can broadcast on that frequency in your area. Nobody else can intrude on that. Now, since we are giving you the exclusive right or exclusive license to use that frequency, we have the right to put some controls on that. We have the right to insist that you have to operate your radio station in the public interest. But what does that mean in the public interest? Well, it can be scary because it can mean whatever some government official wants it to mean, whatever he thinks is in the public interest. But there was a concern back in the 1940s that certain radio stations were broadcasting one viewpoint and excluding others. And it seemed like, especially, a lot of conservative radio stations were having a great deal of influence in the airwaves, and some liberal politicians felt threatened by this. And so they managed to persuade the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, to enact what was called the Fairness Doctrine. And the Fairness Doctrine didn't necessarily say you got to have equal time to everybody, but it said you have to give fair and balanced treatment. That's where Fox News got that phrase. You have to give fair and balanced treatment to issues that you address. And so that was commonly interpreted to mean that if a radio station let somebody broadcast on a particular viewpoint, then they would, upon request at least, have to let somebody who took a different viewpoint broadcast and give that viewpoint as well. Didn't necessarily say it had to be equal time. Didn't necessarily say that if your station is a conservative station, so you're giving free time to this person, that means you have to give free time to somebody on the other side. But in some way, it at least had to be fair and balanced. That was in 1947 that the Fairness Doctrine was developed. It was criticized for about four decades throughout the years, and some felt it was being used by the government to suppress viewpoints that the government thought was, were contrary to their best interests and so on. And also, as we started to move into the 60s and so on, we started to see that maybe Maybe the airwaves are not quite as restricted as they used to be. You know, it used to be when all you had was AM radio stations, and when all you had was just the local TV channels, maybe a dozen of them, that there's only a certain number of frequencies available. But with the development of FM, of closed circuit, and so many other things like this, the number of circuits or frequencies available to broadcast on became so much broader that people began to say that, well, maybe the Fairness Doctrine isn't needed anymore. And there were some also who thought the Fairness Doctrine was unconstitutional, that it violated the free speech of those who ran a radio station. 
And we've already talked about that, but I guess the best way to answer it is simply this. The court doctrine of that, that time, which has never really been overturned, is that people who run radio and TV stations have certain First Amendment rights, but those rights are not as absolute as they are for somebody who's just speaking out of the open air or for somebody that's running a newspaper with unlimited paper and ink available to, to opponents. Now the question is, how does this apply to big tech and where is the fairness doctrine today? After we come back. listening to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. All right, Colonel, a good explanation there about the uh, fairness doctrine in the last segment. Where does that leave us today? Well, let's move into the Reagan years, 1981 to 1989. And Reagan himself had been critical of the fairness doctrine. Many of his supporters were also critical of it. And during his administration, I believe it was 1987, the FCC, which at that time was composed of four people, two Democrats and two Republicans, they voted unanimously to abolish the Fairness Doctrine. Now, they didn't say it was unconstitutional. They expressly said, we're not going to reach the constitutional issue of the First Amendment here. but we just think that the Fairness Doctrine has outlived its usefulness. It's no longer necessary. And so they eliminate it. And of course, they recognize that at this time, you've got all these liberal news media that, you know, the CBS, ABC, and all those stations that are showing an increasingly liberal slant, and they're getting away with it. That in radio, you have public radio and so on that generally is taking a more liberal position and then a lot of other stations that might take a more conservative position. But point simply being that with all of that going on, there is a lot more diversity in the airwaves than there used to be. And so the FCC decided and Reagan agreed that the fairness doctrine is no longer necessary. There have been efforts by some to bring the fairness doctrine back but since 1987, a time when we didn't even know what email was, we didn't really know what the internet was, I think if I recall my history correctly, you start seeing the development of the internet in the 1990s. And again, hardly anybody really understood at that point just how major a thing the internet was going to be someday. But I remember hearing the story about a guy that walked into a tech shop one time. He had a compact disc with him. He said, would you copy the internet for me? And not realizing how broad the internet actually is. But anyway, so the question now is, how do we apply fairness doctrine principles to the internet? We're seeing big tech, and it might just be a complete anomaly the way Big tech today is as left-wing as it really is. And that might be a subject for another 
discussion sometime, how big tech got to be so liberal. I'm not, I know the answer to that entirely. Generally, in universities, you find that the technical schools are generally not as left-wing as the liberal arts schools are. But nevertheless, it seems like big tech is dominated not only by managers, but staff people as well, who are very liberal in their orientation. And that may not matter too much if they just administered everything fairly, but the idea that we seem to think maybe a decade or so ago was that on the internet, anybody can have his own website and broadcast his own ideas on that website. And if you don't like what he's saying, then set up your own website and present your own ideas. The problem is these platforms. And Brian, I want to apologize here if I misuse some terms, but when it comes to technology, I'm still being dragged kicking and screaming into the <laughs> 20th century, and I did say 20th, not 21st. I sometimes say that I'm the guy who drove all over Montgomery trying to find the app store and concluded <laughs> that we don't have an app store in Montgomery, but I'm not quite that bad, but I certainly am not real tech savvy. But anyway, platforms, things like that, I don't always use the right terminology, but the point is that if people take a conservative viewpoint on something, very often they'll be denied a platform. Their Twitter account will be closed. Their Facebook account might be closed and so on. And they'll have no way of getting their message across. When the president of the United States can have his Twitter, Twitter account closed because he said things that people on Twitter that run the Twitter disagree with, it seems like there's something grossly wrong with that. And yet, what exactly is big tech? What is Twitter? What is Facebook? It's not exactly like a newspaper, but at the same time, it's not exactly like a radio or TV show. There aren't a certain number of frequencies that you can assign in big tech and on the internet and so on. There are a number of frequencies there like there would be with the airwaves. So does that mean that those who run Twitter or Facebook, that they have the right to publish what they want to publish and not publish what they don't want to publish. But maybe unlike the airwaves, it's very difficult for the average person to get his views out. If he doesn't have access to Twitter or if he doesn't have access to Facebook and so on. There's another thing that complicates this further too, and that's the Facebook, Twitter, these other big tech companies keep, by the way, I don't know if you've ever heard this, Brian, that there's a merger is coming between these companies, YouTube and Twitter and Facebook, that those are merging into one company. Do you know that? I hadn't heard. They're going to call themselves U-Twit-Face. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke, I think. But, but, but anyway... Do the people who run Twitter have a right to exclude anything they don't want? Part of what their standpoint is, is that we don't think we ought to be forced to disseminate false information. But of course, they're defining what's false. For example, and 
let's face it, sometimes COVID and the vaccine and things like that, that's almost become a religion to some of these people. And if people are coming on the air and saying that vaccines are not necessary, vaccines are harmful, you shouldn't take a vaccine, you shouldn't have to take a vaccine, you shouldn't have to wear a mask. Well, in the view of some of these people who are running Twitter, they're saying those people are sending false messages and their messages that are going to be unhealthy. People are going to listen to that. They're going to believe it. They're not going to get vaccinated and they're going to die and they're going to take a lot of people with them. And should we be disseminating that message for them? Aren't we complicit in what they're putting across if we don't? Or Donald Trump and his supporters are sending all these false messages about how an election was stolen in 2020. And should we be complicit in getting that false message out? Because if we do that, aren't we going to have an effect in destroying confidence in the judicial system? Well, you can see where they're coming from on this. We shouldn't have to play a role in disseminating all of this, what they're calling false information, what you and I would say is, at the very least, a difference of opinion. Anyway, so what is the solution? How do we divide here between the rights of those who run Twitter to have freedom of the press and free speech versus the right of the average person who wants to get his message across and is having it suppressed simply because somebody at Twitter disagrees with it? It's a difficult problem to solve. Now, here's another issue, too, is that Twitter is also insisting, Facebook is also insisting, that because we are media like this and we are like the airwaves and so on, we shouldn't be held liable. In other words, if somebody is sending out false messages and they get sued for libel, or slander, or something else for having disseminated falsehoods. They can be sued for that, but we shouldn't be because we're just the disseminator. We should be exempt from that, they're saying. Well, on the one hand, if they're saying that they should be exempt from that, then they should also be saying that we have an obligation to put on different viewpoints. If they're saying that, no, we don't have an obligation to put on different viewpoints. We have the right to put on anything that we want, to air any Twitter account that we want, and to cancel anyone we don't want. Well, then maybe they should be liable for their actions like anybody else's. So they're kind of wanting to have their cake and eat it too as well. Solution after the break.
final segment of Constitution Classroom today with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. All right, Colonel, let's uh, let's bring this home and what this means for us today. All this technology, but we're still having trouble getting the truth out. Okay, let's bring this home, and that's going to be very hard to do. I'd like to think I've done a pretty good job so far in showing what the problem is and showing how it's not just as simple as people on either side might like to think it is, that there are some complex issues both ways here, that big tech and its platforms like Twitter and so on, they're not the same thing as the airwaves, but they're not quite the same thing as a newspaper either. So how do we solve this? How do we try to make sure that the average person has an opportunity to say what he thinks and get his message across, but at the same time, safeguard the rights of those who run things like Twitter and so on, because they too have the right of free speech. Is the solution more government regulation? Well, generally, if you hear me asking a question like that, the question almost suggests the answer, that no more regulation is seldom the solution to a problem. Government many times is not the solution. Government is more of a problem. And if government steps in, what are they going to do? If they're going to force, let's say, Twitter or Facebook to broadcast all kinds of different viewpoints, then are they going to force them to broadcast pornography, obscenity, advocacy of illegal action, and so on? You know, we talk about advocacy of illegal action. You can advocate that the laws be changed, but free speech doesn't give you the right to advocate that they be broken. Let's take drugs, for example, heroin and the like. Now, if you want to get in the airwaves, or if you want to make a speech in which you say that the laws ought to be changed and we ought to legalize drugs, you have every right to do that. But if you get on the airwaves and tell people to break the law and use drugs in violation of the law, the First Amendment does not protect you in doing that. But anyway, one of the solutions that's been suggested here is to simply say that Twitter and Facebook and so on cannot shut people down just because they disagree with their speech. But again, I think that may be denying the rights of those who run those platforms. And also, that's giving government a great deal of power to regulate big tech. I mean, ideally, big tech, just like the press and just like the broadcast media, they should be a check on government power. Unfortunately, right now, so much of the media is just allied with government and perpetuates the falsehoods that government is perpetuating. And that's unfortunate, but generally, the idea of a free press is a check on the power of media. If government takes over the platforms, then that eliminates a check on government power and certainly increases the power of the government. And that is, of course, very dangerous. I always like the statement of Lord Acton when he says, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. We remember that statement. We don't remember his next sentence, which is, great men are almost always bad men, meaning that there's a special need to limit their power. 
So just giving government more power, I'm not sure that's the solution. Another solution that some have suggested is breaking up some of these big tech companies. For example, breaking up Facebook and into many smaller companies or Google into many smaller companies and so on. And anyway, one of the dangers in doing that, of course, is you're really going to hurt the shareholders. Are you really affecting free speech rights in any other way besides that? You know, what Google has to do with this? Well, Google is not necessarily a platform in the way that Facebook or the way that Twitter is, but nevertheless, it is a search engine, and it does seem to be very much taken over by the left. And if you plug in a term that you want to be searched for on Google, for example, and see what comes up, it seems like it's built into their system to direct you toward liberal websites and direct you away from conservative websites. Now, if you're savvy to this and you're going to fight that, you can refine your search and make them give you what you're looking for. But if you're not that savvy, it may just direct you to other sources. And the potential there to favor left-wing causes and to disfavor conservative causes is pretty obvious. Well, maybe the solution lies within the free enterprise system itself. Maybe the ideal solution is to have the system set up as it is, where somebody like Elon Musk, who, let's face it now, Elon Musk is not necessarily a conservative, but he certainly does not buy into the causes of the far left blindly like so many others do. And so at the very least, you have to say he's refreshing. And his purchase of Twitter and his desire to make Twitter into a platform where all viewpoints will be welcome, maybe that's the solution. Maybe part of the solution is to see companies established like Fox News. And if you're frustrated with things on Fox News, you have the alternative from the conservative side of Newsmax or Blaze or a number of other networks like this and other new networks developing like, like Mike Lindell's network and so on. And so maybe that's the solution within free enterprise and the First Amendment freedoms themselves rather than government coming in. But anyway, what I try to do here is to demonstrate to people that, yes, we do have a threat to freedom of expression going on here, the way big tech is operating its platforms. But the solution may not be to just let the government take over. Anyway, so I haven't answered questions here because I don't have clear answers. I'm still searching on these myself. I see many different sides to the issue. But... I hope maybe I've helped our listening audience to see what an issue this really is, maybe to think it through more, and in the process of doing that, maybe some of us will come up with some ideas. Well, Brian, do you have any thoughts on this? I think what you have described just perfectly illustrates why it's so important that uh, no matter how trusted your sources of information are, 
There's no substitute for being willing to do your own homework, to, to think deeply, and to, to go ahead and research deeply any subject that you care enough to know about. And, and you know, that, that would mean <clears throat> just question it all, but do it with the idea, not so much I want to prove everything wrong, as much as I want to seek out for myself, you know, what is true and what isn't. And I think people who do that will find themselves to be very, uh, they'll, they'll become very practiced at recognizing uh, truth from error, and they'll be a lot tougher to fool than the people who just sit back and wait to passively absorb, you know, whatever comes up on their first Google search or whatever somebody's saying, you know, on a given program or whatever they read in a particular media source. And that's very well said. And I think, especially if you're well-grounded in the scripture and well-grounded in the Constitution, you're in a position where you can read and listen to things that you don't agree with without being corrupted by it. In fact, you might even find that some of those who take a position different from yours do have some things worth thinking about. What I do every day is I have several media feeds that come in to me the New York Times is definitely not my favorite media by any means, but I get a daily column from the New York Times that most of the time I read. The Washington Post, which, if anything, is even worse than the New York Times. You know, the caption that used to be on the banner of the New York Times, the masthead, I should say, was all the news that's fit to print. Right. Anymore, it's all the news that fits. <laughs> but... In Iowa, we had a very liberal paper called the Des Moines Register. Iowa was a pretty conservative state, except for Des Moines, the capital. But the Des Moines Register was a very liberal paper, and their caption was, the newspaper all Iowa depends on. Well, we called it the newspaper that depends on all Iowa. <laughs> but anyway, so... The Washington Post has something that comes out every day, almost every day. It's called the South. Seven news articles, the quick news articles you can read. And it's good just to see that these your own media might miss that, but just to see this sort of thing and to get the opposite perspective from time to time. But three questions you should always ask when somebody comes up with an idea. Why do you believe that? Where did you get your information? How do you know that source is reliable? You should ask that. Maybe they'll think about it too. <laughs> 